Our next I am statement. If you've been with us, we've been going through the I am sayings of Jesus. Today we're on I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. One of the more famous I am statements probably. Partly famous because it's a little bit controversial. We'll get to that in a minute. But when I hear I am the way, if our metaphor today is the way, being the Star Wars nerd that I am, automatically the Mandalorian comes to mind, this is the way. That's the first thing that pops into my head. Forgive me, yes, I know, I get it. But what I'm saying is, if you don't know anything about that, that's fair and that's reasonable and sane. You don't necessarily need to know about that, except what the character is talking about is that he had a way of living, a creed. He said, this is the way. Whatever his circumstances were, this is the way that I live. Jesus is saying something very similar on a much deeper, more meaningful, lasting kind of level than Star Wars, okay? But I also worked for a summer camp that I know I've shared stories about. And the, the director would give these devotionals on basically chapel. It wasn't a Christian camp, but we had chapel. And she would talk about living the strong river way. That was the name of the camp. And so everything about how we lived and operated at camp, it was called the way. Things about being kind, things about being generous, things about being transparent. All these characteristics that she would talk, characteristics she'd talk about at chapel, even without the Bible, she was teaching people how to live the way. So when we hear this metaphor, it says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. If you know anything about church history, then right after Pentecost, at the early stages of the church, that's how they actually referred to the Christian church. They simply called it the way. If you're as old as I am, you got an NIV Bible that had the way on the cover from the 70s. Yes, I'm that old. They call the church the way. So there's inherent in this metaphor a way of living, a set of rules, a set of creeds that they live by. And as soon as you say, well, I don't have one of those, even not having one is a way of living. <laughs> you have a creed. Your creed might be <laughs> coffee on Sunday morning, football on Sunday afternoon. That might be your way. I don't know. We all have a way. We all have a way of operating. We all, some of us are more particular than others. Some of us, our way is more flexible than others. But if you say, Charlie, we're going to move church. Hey, if I said, hey, we're going to move connection to 8 a.m., some of you go, that is not the way. <laughs> right? So, so you do have a way because you just resisted that in your brain. You went, no, 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 no. That's not enough sleep. I'd probably agree with you. But you get what I'm saying. We all are creatures of habit. We all have this sense about us and a way of approaching life. It's a path. It's a road. It's a route. It's a way of operating. And then he adds to it the truth and the life. So he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And we're going to talk about all three of those this morning because this is, this is one of the more definitive statements of Jesus, right? So let me give you a little context. When he gives this statement, he has, in, where this shows up in the Gospel of John, he has done his public ministry and he's begun to educate his disciples on how the way is really going to work. He started to reveal to them that the Son of Man must die and be resurrected, which is starting to confuse the disciples. They're like, wait, I thought you were going to be Messiah and King, and I was going to sit on his right hand, and you're going to sit on his left hand, and we're going to kick Rome out, and it's going to be awesome. That's what we signed up for three years ago. What are you talking about? I mean, that's kind of where they are. They're like, this guy can raise the dead. This guy can feed 5,000 people with a couple of breads, uh, loaves of bread and fish. 
He can't be stopped. The Pharisees can't handle him intellectually. The Romans don't know what to do with him. This guy's the Messiah. And Jesus goes, I got to die. And he says it a couple of times, so they start going, what's he talking about? Now, if you had banked on this guy being the Messiah and you're following him everywhere and you're one of his disciples and he talks about suffering and dying, you start to get a little disconcerted. And so John 14, where we find this saying, this I am saying, is in kind of his parting discourse to his disciples, some of his final teachings, once he's turning towards, I'm going to have to die for you on the cross or die for you and rise again from the dead. And so this is when he's talking about when he says the things we're going to read here. So this is John chapter 14. This is the first seven verses. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and I will take you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said, said to him, Lord... We do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. We'll keep going in a minute, but that's good for now. So, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Remember, he's reassuring them because their confidence has been shaken. He's talking about leaving. He's talking about checking out, talking about having to suffer and die at the hands of Rome, whatever he's telling his disciples. And they're like, he says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in me the way you believe in the Father. Trust me, it'll work out is the code. It's basically what he's saying. He's like, hey, I know you're upset. I know you're concerned. Don't let your heart be troubled. Trust me on this. Then he does, there's a verse 2, all to remind you of a famous 80s Christian song. Those of you who are old enough to know this, again, I'm aging myself this morning. This is my father's house. It's a big, big house with lots of room. Anybody ringing bells, traumatically speaking or otherwise, right? He says, this, in my father's house, there are many mansions, many rooms, many places to live, however you translate that. By the way, the way it translates, it's not really like everybody in heaven has their own McMansion. It really says many, many rooms or many dwelling places. And so the picture is one massive mansion with everybody with Jesus. A big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And the song was pretty accurate. Yeah, she's throwing football over there. That's right. Yeah, I'm convinced that Oreo buffets without, without regret are part of heaven and probably football and some other things. But yeah, so big mansion. With, but the main point is, though, I'm going to prepare a place for you when I leave. I'm not just checking out. I'm not just going to be like one of these other fake messiahs who dies and then he's gone. I am leaving so that I can prepare this place for you. Don't let your heart be troubled. Then I'm going to come back and get you and you will be with me forever, which is really the key part. Don't get focused on whether you get like a king-size bed and a hot tub. The mansion doesn't matter. The mansion doesn't matter. It could be a shack. It could be a tent with a sleeping bag on the ground. Imagine that for eternity. It could be a shack on the ground and you wouldn't care. Because the point is, you'll be with Jesus. He says, I go away to prepare a place for you, and then I am coming back, and when I return, I will take you with me to this place I've prepared for you. So he's telling them, he's making them a promise. You have no reason to worry. You'll be with me forever. I am making that promise 
to you. I want you to understand this. What's interesting is verse 4, he, in fact, he says, you know the way there. You know how to get there. And, and Thomas is like, we, we really don't. <laughs> like, we don't even know where this place is. How in the world can we know the way there? You know, Thomas is the guy in class. He's like, this is, by the way, this is doubting Thomas. They think. They raises his hand and says, um, how are we supposed to know how to get there if we don't know where there is? You know? And Jesus responds with the I am statement. He says, how are we supposed to know the way? How are we supposed to know the way? I am the way, the truth, and the life. How are we supposed to know the way? You know the way. Me, Jesus says, not Charlie, right? He says, how do I know the way? I'm the way. Oh. Huh? <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the dialogue that's going on here, right? He says, I don't know how we're supposed to get there. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know me, and because you know me, you know the Father. And then he says this thing that is very controversial. No one gets to the Father, no one comes to heaven except through me. All right. So there's the metaphor. Jesus is offering a path. He says, I am the way there. I am the truth. I am the understanding. I am the way that you can have eternity with the Father. I'm going away to prepare a place. I'm coming back and I will take you with me. You already know how to get there because you already know me. That's essentially what he's telling him. So what does this metaphor reveal to us about Jesus? It is a challenging passage, is it not? I am the way, the truth, and life. Everybody says, no one gets to the Father except through you. In, in common culture and in the world, that sounds a little exclusive, doesn't it? Only Jesus is the only way. That seems complicated. Seems a little controversial. What about people who don't know Jesus? What about people in a little hut in Africa? Jesus, Christianity is too exclusive. By the way, we've been doing this whole series of I am statements. I am the light. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. All these statements that we've been going through are just as exclusive. He doesn't say, I am a light, but there's others. He doesn't say, I am a source of bread, of life. The I am statements are all exclusive in the sense that only Jesus is the way. We all get all, we all get about, this one's famous because it says, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one. And you, no one. Actually, anyone through Jesus is the, way, the other way to frame that, phrase that statement. It's not that no one gets into heaven. That would be exclusive. Just the disciples. That's not the exclusivity. It's anyone who follows him that gets into heaven. That's not exclusive. What's exclusive is he is the only way. From his perspective, there is no other light. There is no other bread. There is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other source of life except Jesus. But it is available to anyone who seeks after him. That's not exclusive. That doesn't cut you out. That doesn't set you aside and go, oh man, I, I can't know Jesus I guess I have no hope. That's pretty exclusive of God. He makes himself available to all. That's what he's proclaiming when he says it. You know me, therefore you know my Father. Which is another way of him stating his mission and purpose for coming among us in the first place. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. I have come and if you know me, you know my Father. 
And you know my Father is in me and I am Him. And those, are, those, are, those are claims about His own divinity and His own divine nature. I am God revealed to you in the only way that we could ever have understood what it means to have a relationship with God. So He tells the disciples, you know God. You know the way to God. It's me. And they've been walking with Him in the desert for three years. So what is this way that Jesus is referring to. He's warned them that he's going to have to go away and die. So the way of Jesus is suffering and sacrifice. There's an exciting message for you this morning. Follow Jesus. He's the way. Suffering and sacrifice, anyone? It costs something to follow Jesus. He says things like, take up your cross and follow me. That if you love me, the world will hate you. I'll tell you what's exclusive about this claim. If you love Jesus, the rest of the world might not love you. You're excluding the world or excluding the way of the world when you say, I'm following this way. He says to lose your life, you must lose your life to save it. The way, Jesus says, this is the way. Mandalorian quote again there. If he says, this is the way, the way is following Jesus and that's going to cost you something. It may even cost you your life. In fact, Philippians 2, he says, God did not, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead became one of us and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. But then he'd be resurrected, and in his name, the whole world would proclaim as the Lord. Very much a paraphrase of Philippians 2 there. You're welcome to read it on your own time. But you get the idea. In the very first place, him becoming one of us, he sacrificed. By becoming one of us in the first place, he experienced things we experience. He suffered the way we suffer. He stubbed his toe. He stepped on a Lego metaphorically. Like he suffered the things we deal with. Gave up his position, gave up his status, became one of us so that we could know him and by knowing him, know the Father. The way of Jesus is love and suffering. In fact, it was the greatest, Jesus says, the greatest act of love is to lay down your life for someone else. So if we take Philippians 2 at its face value, and we take following me, and this is how I live at face value, then it is love and suffering. He loved us by suffering for us. And he's warning the disciples, I'm going to have to go do this. I'm going to have to go fulfill my way. I'm going to have to go suffer for you so that you will have a way to God. His way offers us a path to knowing God. We'll get to that in a little more detail in that in a minute. But if we know Him, then we know how to follow God. If we follow what He has us to do, then we, know, then we know the way to live. He offers us truth. I am the way, the truth. Let's talk about absolute truth for a minute. There are absolute truths, by the way. A number of years ago, I was working with some, some high school students in Florida, and I was talking to a young lady who said, God's not real. Christians are crazy, although she used to me and go, Charlie, you're not a crazy Christian, which I was appreciative of, you know. But we had these ongoing dialogues. She didn't believe in Christ. She was not a Christian, but she came to my Christian club every week. And we'd have these encounters, these back and forths. And I'll never forget this conversation because one day we were like, we were talking about absolute truth. Can you know something is absolutely true? And I started talking to her about what it means for the be tr something to be true, even if you don't accept or believe it, is it still true? Is it an absolute truth? And I told her, I said, if I walk up on top of this school building and jump off, will I fall? Will I fly? 
What's the truth? You'll fall. I said, cool. If I believe I can fly, there's a song. If I believe I can fly, will I fly? No. So is it absolutely true that I will fall and break my leg? Yes. No matter how much I believe, it's not true. Yes. And I looked at her and I said, so is it possible there's understanding about God, proof about God that you have not encountered yet that's true whether you believe in God yes, yet or not? There is absolute truth. Whether you want to believe in God, whether you want to believe what Jesus says about certain things in life, doesn't matter. In the sense that if you don't agree with it, too bad. It's still true. And so when we say, oh, this claim about Jesus is pretty exclusive. There must be some other way into heaven. You can believe that. But it doesn't mean it's true. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, he doesn't say, I am a truth. He says, I am the truth. Another way of saying it is, all truth is God's truth. I've been talking about some, I've had conversations about this in the last couple of weeks. Not every truth is in the Bible. Because that would be a much bigger book than what we have. Heart surgery, not in Scripture. Is heart surgery true? Diabetes, treatment for diabetes, in Scripture? No. True? Yes. In other words, all the truth isn't in the Bible. It'd be a really, really, really large book. You'd need the electronic version and a few servers. Okay? But all truth belongs to God. We're able to discover things like heart surgery, and cures for disease, and antibiotics, and psychology, and all the things that we know to be true, that we study and we learn, God gave us the mind to study creation and discern truth. But guess who authored all of that that we study? God. Some of the very earliest scientists, earliest modern scientists, I should say, were preachers. Guys you studied in eighth grade, like that dude Copernicus? Yeah, he preached. Like... The scientists, and the reason modern science was born in the very first place, is they believed there was an absolute created order to the universe to be discovered in the first place, a la science. So the very premise of science was not to disprove God. The original premise of science was to discover the order that God put to the universe. Now think about how reversed that is now. <laughs> We're going to prove, absolutely prove God's not true. You keep on believing that. The science you're based your career on is founded in the idea that God created the universe to work a certain way. This is the way. <laughs> right? So he says, I am the truth and I am the life. He offers us life. John 10.10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Does that mean perfect and without blemish and without disaster and without pain and without anguish? Because of sin, unfortunately, no. Any pastor that goes, and I know you've heard this, and I'm not saying they're bad guys, they mean right. Any pastor ever goes, accept Jesus, he has a perfect plan for your life. You ever heard that? I have a friend of mine who, uh, her husband died when she was like 26 with a little kid. She found out a week later, number two was on the way. Pregnant, one kid, now single mom at 26 because her dad died, her husband died. And people would tell her, God... This is all part of God's plan. For her to be a single mom with one on the way and for her husband to have fall dead in a basketball court, that was part of God's perfect plan for her life? She would say no. 
the rest of her story is pretty awesome. She's remarried. She's studying for ministry and for counseling and has helped other women walk through the grieving process. God's done amazing things in her story. He had a perfect plan for her life. But he did promise her, you'll have life and have it to the full. That even when you're struggling, even when you're suffering, even when you're hurting, he makes the promise in verse 7, or in first seven verses. When I, I will take you with me, I will be with you. So when life is not perfect and when life is not going the way it ought to go, you're not going that way alone. He's with you. Life to the full is not absence of pain and suffering. Life to the full is in the midst of pain and suffering, knowing that God is with you. We say that at Connection all the time. Best of all, hey, some of y'all knew what I was trying to do there. Best of all, there you go. We say that at Connection every Sunday. If you're new, we'll say it again at the end of service. It is best of all. It's the last one, some of the last words of John Wesley. But it is a great truth that best of all, no matter what the circumstances, God is with us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, is what he promises at the end of the Great Commission. It's not exclusive. He's made God possible for all of us. Look at verse 8, because the little story here continues. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, I have been with you all of this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen, has seen the Father, whoever has seen me, excuse me, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Nothing like being called out by Jesus. Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father, I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I, don't, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe me because of the works themselves. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and in fact will do greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Okay. So what, so what happens? So Jesus has said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Philip goes, just show us the Father. That's good. What does he mean? He understands a little bit about what Jesus is saying. Follow me. I'm going to go away and suffer and die. Just show us the Father. That's good. There's something going on in the dialogue where it's like, it'll be enough if you just show us the Heavenly Father. We don't need to do the buy-in thing. We don't need to do the love and suffering part. We'll just show us God. We know you're you. We're good. You, we kind of think that's funny, but we do the same thing. Hey, I'm a Christian. I got my fire insurance. I go to church on Sunday. That's enough. But how does Jesus respond to Philip? How long have you been with me? I thought you knew me. Uh-oh. Philip's one of the disciples. He's walked around with Jesus for almost three years, and Jesus goes, I thought you knew me. That's a scary moment if you're Philip. Wait, I don't? We've been hanging out, camping out together, walking everywhere. I don't know you. He says, those who know me will do the works that I do. It's not just enough to go, oh, I know Jesus. That's all enough for me. Just show me the Father. He says, if you know me and you know the Father, you will do the works 
the Father has given you to do. In fact, you will do greater things than you've seen me do. Wow. What a promise. By the way, the disciples did do lots of miraculous things, right? But he says, if you know me, then you will follow me and you will do the works that I do. You'll go through what I've gone through. You'll, be, you'll experience things I've experienced, but you'll also do miracles that I've done. If you, do you not know me? Do you not know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father? But, he says, but Philip's like basically telling Jesus, hey, don't tell us we have to suffer and sacrifice and all that. We just want to know you and know God. It'll be great. We do the exact same thing. So if the metaphor is a certain way, and it's open to everybody, it's not an exclusive way, anybody can follow it. But that way involves sacrifice and submission to Christ and following the way He's called you to live. And Jesus has made God the Father available that way, that, down that path, through Him, truth and life to the full. Then the question becomes, what's our response to such a message? Because our immediate reaction is, that's pretty exclusive, Jesus. But the reality is the way to salvation is not the nice little comfortable way we set up for ourselves. This is how it should operate. You ever hear people say, that's not the God, my God wouldn't do that. You ever hear that phrase? The God I know wouldn't do that. I'm so glad you've got God all figured out. Because that's what you're saying. The God you know, so you've got special knowledge of how God operates. Sweet, you're going to write it in a gospel for us? You cannot sit in judgment over this book. You cannot sit in judgment over Jesus and go, Jesus wouldn't do it that way. What would Jesus do? <laughs> that whole, I'm dating myself again. Y'all know the bracelets, WWJD? I probably told this before, but when I was counseling adolescent offenders, I showed up at a small group one day, a bunch of kids in youth court, hadn't seen a church. We're sitting down in a counseling group. One week, they all got WWJD bracelets on. I'm like, has a revival broke out? They're all wearing WWJD bracelets. They're like, yeah, Charlie, who wants Jack Daniels? We got work to do, okay? That's not what that bracelet stands for, but all right, you co-opted it for yourself. That's fine. We still got work to do. So what's our response? No one comes to the Father by any other way. The way to God, the way to truth, and the way to life is to know Him. That's what He tells us in the passage. For anybody who makes wearing the bracelet or coming to church or tithing or gives you a list of things that you have to do to be saved or to be a Christian, hasn't read John 14. Because He says, to follow Me, if you know Me, you will do the works. He doesn't say, do the works so that you will know Me. That's getting it backwards. If you know Me, you know the Father. And if you know the Father, you will do the work the Father's given you to do. It follows the knowing part, not the other way around. We don't do spiritual stuff to know God better. We do spiritual stuff because we know God. It's a response. Our response to Jesus proclaiming, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is to know the way. That's what he tells Thomas. You already know the way. Thomas like, I don't know what you're talking about. Sometimes we feel that way about our spirituality. We know Jesus. Those who know me will do the work God's given them to do. That's what he tells them. So our response is to know and to seek Christ and to follow the way. 
And when we seek after Jesus, when we get to know Jesus, then of course we'll do what Jesus, what would Jesus do? <laughs> we would know it, we would do that because we know the Father and we know Jesus and we know the right the way. This is the way. This is the way I live. And so when we talk about ordering our life, when we talk about having a way of doing things, our way is Jesus' way. Jesus could have beat the Mandalorian to the punch. This is the way. Me. <laughs> Try that one, Mando. You know what I mean? Like, this is the way. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. You don't get to Jesus by what you do. You live the way because you know him. You live the way he's called you to live because you know him, not the other way around. That's our response, to know Jesus more and to do the work that we get to know when we know God. Let's pray. Lord, with our heart this morning, we confess that you are the way, you are the truth, and you are the life. We confess that there is no other way of hope of life, and of truth apart from you. Let that truth rest in our hearts this morning. Renew in us a deep sense of love and pursuit of you. Help us to know you more. Form our way of life so that we may have life and have it to the full. In Christ's name, amen. Let's stand.